Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Biblically and Beyond podcast. I'm your host, Jess Paley. And in today's episode, we're going to tackle the topic of women and the New Testament. So without further ado, let's jump into it. So this is an episode that I'm really excited to make, uh, focusing on the topic of women in the New Testament. Uh, I just think that the topic is super fascinating, has a lot of relevance um, to the current day in terms of understanding women in the church and various differences between denominations and whether they ordain women or not, the, the role of women in worship, all these issues are still ongoing in some circles. And so it's an interesting mix of uh, being interesting historically, but also having modern day relevance as well. And one thing that I do want to preface before jumping into it is that when I say women in the New Testament, uh, I say all women besides Mary, uh, mother of Jesus. Uh, Mary, mother of Jesus, you know, I think she's she deserves her own episode. She's, you know, obviously very unique in terms of the role that she plays uh, in in the New Testament. Um, so when I say women, I, I uh, more mean every woman besides Mary, mother of Jesus. Um, but nonetheless, uh, when it comes to women in the New Testament, uh, I think it's helpful to sort of split them into two groups. We have women who are uh, prominent within Jesus's mission and are mentioned in the Gospels. And then we have women who are mentioned uh, in the letters of Paul. And both of these groups of women play different roles. And primarily the women who were following Jesus were Jewish, whereas, although we don't know this for a fact, the, the, the women who were part of Paul's mission, or that Paul mentions, uh, were a mix of Jewish and Gentile, and probably more Gentile than Jewish, though, again, um, really hard to say, but certainly more uh, ethnically diverse, uh, if we want to frame it that way. So oftentimes when we think about women in the New Testament, uh, we often think about uh, negative things. Though early in this podcast, when we talked about the pastoral epistles and First Timothy and some of the uh, unsavory things that it has to say about women in terms of women being saved through childbirth, women staying silent in church, uh, not being allowed to teach or have authority over a man, all of these things that have been used to um, uh, really subjugate women or, or put women to, to the side. Uh, these are often passages that, that people think of or that, that are discussed, and those are absolutely very important to, to discuss. Um, but those have to, more have to do with like women in general. You know, they don't, they're not referencing a specific woman or, or specific set of people per se. Uh, and when we think about the writers of the, the New Testament, the gospel writers, Paul, the authors of the other epistles, uh, all of them were men. And so we're getting the this information about women and their their place within the Jesus's mission in early church from almost a purely male perspective. Um, so these are all things that we need to keep in mind when thinking about the place of women in early Christianity and the New Testament. 
because when we start drilling down in the evidence, it becomes clear that women played a very, very prominent role, both in the mission of Jesus, as well as Paul's mission and just the early Christian landscape that Paul was operating within. So when we look at the Gospels, apart from Mary, mother of Jesus, there's some differentiation between the Gospels in terms of um, who Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as well as John, say in terms of women in the Jesus movement. Um, they include different women, uh, essentially, but you know, we, have, uh, we have some people that stick out. First and foremost, Mary Magdalene. You know, almost everybody is, is familiar with her. And I will uh, say this outright, that um, she is not a uh, prostitute. She was not a prostitute. She was not married to Jesus. Um, none, none of these things that have sort of uh, trickled into um, wider narratives uh, about um, people in the New Testament you know, you have the gospel of Jesus's wife was a big story, you know, 10 or so years ago, and then that was proven to be a fake. Uh, you had, the, obviously, the Da Vinci Code and, and all these other more, like, uh, popular books and, and TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, n none of these things are true. Uh, just a little side note, the thing about the, the Mary Magdalene being a prostitute, uh, she's often identified with the unnamed woman in John uh, in the famous story of, you know, Jesus saying he without sin cast the first stone in that very, very famous story, um, which it, uh, appears in John. But there's no reason to think that Mary Magdalene uh, is to be identified with, with that woman. Uh, Mary Magdalene actually was from, as her name would uh, would imply, from the city of Magdala, uh, which I actually visited while uh, during my recent trip to to Israel. And Magdala was known as a, a fairly affluent town, or a little city, or town would be more accurate, or village maybe even. Uh, but they were most known for trading in fish and for the high quality of their fish. And so a lot of scholars hypothesize that Mary Magdalene was, uh, first of all, unmarried. Uh, we don't know if she was previously married and her husband died. We don't know if they had a divorce. We don't know if she was just never married. We, we don't know. But uh, she came from the city of Magdala. And given what we know, it seems highly probable that she was a, a wealthy woman on her own, on her own in the sense of she was not, she was not married. Now we're told that how she met, we don't know how she originally met Jesus, but we're told that Jesus uh, essentially um, uh, cast uh, a, a large group of demons out of her. So we don't know again, um, exactly the historical setting behind this. Maybe she was suffering from some disease. We, we don't know. But uh, it seems highly probable that um, she was healed by Jesus or perceived to be healed by Jesus. And uh, as a result, she became an ardent follower of his. Now we have other uh, uh, women who are often mentioned with Mary Magdalene. We have Salome, who's uh, often mentioned. We don't know too much about her. We have um, other Marys. We have Mary, mother of James and um, Joseph and... Um, uh, I'm uh, blinking exactly because a lot, 
a lot of these names, there's a lot of Marys, and so they're often associated by like Mary, mother of fill in the blank, and other than Mary, mother of Jesus, sometimes these names get switched around. But there are multiple Marys who are depicted as being mothers of the various uh, original 12 apostles of John, James, and Andrew in particular. And then also in John, you have uh, Martha as well, who is depicted as um, uh, being related to Lazarus, who Jesus raises from the dead and in that famous story. So we have this group of women, uh, again, similar to the situation with the original 12 apostles. Some of the names differ between the Gospels. So we're not exactly sure the, uh, the exact identities and names of all of them. But one thing that is very clear and that is said so explicitly in the Gospels is that these women were following Jesus and that they were following him from very early on, and that they supported his mission. And by support, that means financially. So Jesus and his, his 12 apostles, which were all men, were not working. <laughs> um, it, it's not necessarily obvious that they're not working, but uh, it seems from you know the way that Jesus talks, him saying, you know, drop everything and follow me, the stories of how he recruits Peter and some of the other original apostles in terms of like going up to them while they're fishing and say, give up fishing and come fish for men. But we do have stories of them still fishing or participating in fishing activities during the gospel. So there had to be some uh, uh, source of income there. But uh, in terms of Jesus himself, and then probably, you know, the expenses that, that um, would have been involved could not have been covered by whatever meager earnings the, the apostles may have been making through their, their fishing activities or whatever else they may have participated in. And so Mary Magdalene and um, these other women were, were the financial backers, essentially, of Jesus and, and his mission. Uh, and so without their help, there, there probably would not be uh, a, a mission that, that Jesus could, could go on, at least not in the same way. And so we have these wealthy women, uh, and this is another reason why we think Mary Magdalene was um, a woman of some means. She was um, essentially donating her funds to the cause while also you know, following Jesus around. And then during the resurrection, this is another really interesting point that, that's really easy to overlook. When, if we look at the account in Mark, um, which is our earliest account, uh, though Paul does talk about um, the, the resurrection appearances, and they do differ with what we find in the Gospels, but that's another rabbit hole to go down. But if we look at Mark, which is, in terms of the Gospels, our earliest account, Paul's does come earlier, and for anybody who's interested, could read about it, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but in, in Mark, it's reported that Mary Magdalene and some of the other women were actually the first to see Jesus being resurrected or, or, or having been resurrected. They go to the tomb, you know, depending on which account that you follow. Uh, they see the stone rolled away. They see uh, uh, somebody in white robes who tells them that Jesus isn't there. You know, there's various accounts so you can go read for yourself, compare and contrast. But ultimately, 
the, the end point is still the same, which is that women were the first, or Mary Magdalene specifically, but women more generally were the first to see and essentially authenticate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, you might say to yourself, well, okay, why is that important? Well, in the ancient world, uh, women's testimony was not necessarily um, taken uh, with the same authority as, as that of a man. And so the fact that the first people to see Jesus resurrected and actually report it to Peter and the other apostles were women, that is, uh, that's a really interesting fact that, that shouldn't just be dismissed or, or overlooked. Um, it's the gospel writers are essentially saying, you know, these, these women were the first um, uh, people to be witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. And one of the most uh, important criteria for having some authority within early Christianity being considered a, a true apostle was actually seeing the resur- or yeah, seeing and meeting whatever term you want to apply there, the resurrected Jesus. And these women were the first to do it. And so there, even though the, the gospel writers don't devote lines and lines and lines of, of text uh, talking about these women and maybe what they did, we find little nuggets here and there, such as sort of the, the comments about them following Jesus around and, and supporting his mission, as well as the fact that they're reported as being the first to visit the tomb and see Jesus resurrected. We have these little tidbits of information that we could put together to have a better understanding of, of women's role in uh, the ministry of Jesus. Uh, and so although they were not you know, part of the 12, which were all men, um, and it's very easy to overlook the place of women in the, in the Jesus narrative, apart from Mary, mother of Jesus. They were, in fact, uh, extremely important, uh, although, unfortunately, we don't know too much about them. Uh, and then we see this reflected in, you know, looking past the New Testament, looking into the second century. We have these what are known as Gnostic Gospels. Uh, the Gnostics being this sort of umbrella term for other Christian uh, groups uh, within the second and, yeah, starting around the second century, there's some debate within scholarship, but starting in the early second century, who whose views basically did not win out at the end of the day. You know, they're not part of the Nicene Christianity. They're not part of, quote unquote, mainstream Christianity. And they were essentially... Um, kicked out and silenced. But we did discover in uh, a very famous discovery in basically the trash heaps of, of Egypt in the early and mid 20th century called uh, Nag Hammadi. And the Nag Hammadi discoveries uh, gave us a lot of really interesting insight into early Christian manuscripts, generally speaking, because a lot of them were preserved given the uh, the, the dryness of the, uh, the Egyptian environment and desert where it was found. Really fascinating story. But uh, long story short, what we found with these non-commodity discoveries was a lot of these Gnostic Gospels that we either only knew about from what 
uh, some of the early church fathers talk about. And when they talk about it, they're often refuting uh, the views of these, these Gnostic groups. And so we just get little fragments of text or we get a very, very biased view. Uh, and texts that, you know, we might uh, have some copies of, but they're incomplete. And so this discovery was immensely important for our understanding of early Christianity and specifically Gnostic Christianity. But within those texts was a text that we had only previously known about uh, and knew very little about called the Gospel of Mary. And the Gospel of Mary, although we don't have the complete text, it uh, essentially presents uh, the... It essentially depicts Mary as being Mary, presumably Magdalene here. Um, I, I believe that's what most scholars believe, not Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. Uh, her actually teaching the male apostles and um, being portrayed on equal, if not superior footing to them, which is a very different perspective than we get in the Gospels and, and most other um, early Christian texts. And so it just shows that there was not this monolithic belief within early Christian groups that, you know, men were above women in the hierarchy of authority or that women didn't play a prominent role in the, the teaching of the message of Jesus or in the mission of the, the message of Jesus. It was not ultimately those groups that, that won out, the groups that produced texts like 1 Timothy and, and their tripled views on, on women. Uh, th those were the ones that unfortunately at the end of the day won out. But uh, we should not let that uh, obscure us from seeing that th that was not the view that everybody held. Uh, and we know that because these groups were producing texts that did portray this um, alternative view of, of women and their place within the Jesus movement. Now, that's with the women in the Gospels. Now, if we turn to the women in Paul's mission, which is, you know, less about women in, who knew Jesus and more about how women began to be involved in the ever-growing Jesus movement that started after his death, uh, we have a little bit more information to work with. And it's clear from Paul's text that women, similar to in the case of Jesus, not only supported his mission monetarily and sometimes used their housing and resources to host these early Christian groups, but they were also, you know, very active in these, um, I, I hesitate to use the word like church worship sessions because that's, they, they did not think about it in those terms, but just for uh, for lack of a better way to put it, that they were uh, participants in, in, in these services and that they did hold positions of authority. Now, they didn't have a rigid church structure like we think of now with like bishops, cardinals, priests, you know, whatever uh, Christian don denomination you want to look at. There were you know, certain titles such as deacons that were applied during Paul's time. And then as we get into the early second century and when texts like Second Timothy start to be produced, we do start to see this church hierarchy take, uh, take form with bishops and, and stuff that we start to recognize um, from, a, from a more modern perspective. But during Paul's time, there are several instances where he makes it clear that women both that work with him or that he knows of uh, held positions of prominence. And one example of that comes from Romans 16. So Romans 16 
reads, um, starting with verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Chancera, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require for you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. I always struggle with how to pronounce that uh, that, that word there, deacon of the church in Chancera. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but uh, regardless, here we have a, a, a very clear example. Phoebe, a woman, she is a deacon of this this church. Uh, and and I'm going to stop saying the the word because I think I'm pronouncing it wrong. But basically, this church is located at a a port in the city of Corinth, which is uh, you know more well known city. Um, so she held some sort of um, leadership position in that church. We don't know exactly what it meant to be a deacon, but it was more than just being a peer participant. They had some sort of leadership responsibility. And she, and he's also saying that she's been a benefactor to many and to him. And by benefactor, he means uh, supporting him and others financially. So he's essentially telling the, the congregation that he's writing to in Romans to, to welcome her. Uh, even though they don't know, know her because she's a prominent person in another church in another city, and she's also been a financial ban benefactor to many. Now, as we go to the, the next verse in, in Romans, verse 3, we read, Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Now, Prisca and Aquila, we know them from other letters of Paul as well. Um, they seem to be um, pretty prominent early Christian missionaries. But the interesting thing here is that Prisca here is a, is a woman. Presumably, Aquila was her husband. But she's named first out of the two. And again, you might think to yourself, well, who cares who's named first? Well, in the ancient world, and to some extent, you know, even in modern times, the, the order of the, the names does matter and usually indicates um, you know, increased importance if you're putting somebody first. So the fact that the woman is mentioned first in this, in this couple is, is interesting uh, and, and unusual. If we have a husband and wife pair, the, the husband is almost always named first, but, but not in this case. And it's clear that they also uh, play a very prominent role. So Aquila uh, and Prisca and Aquila were uh, not only workers with Paul, but they also risked their lives. We don't know exactly what Paul means by this, but it's very clear that Paul holds them in very high esteem and that they also hold a very prominent role within um, some of these early Christian communities. Now, we go to now verse 7 in Romans 16, and this is the, the last example that we'll look at here. It reads, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Now here we get to the most interesting example that, that we've examined so far. So note first that, again, this is probably a husband and wife pair of a husband, Andronicus, being named first. And then Junia, which is a female name, being named second. But that's 
not the important part. The important part is what comes after. Not only were they in jail with Paul, but they were prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before Paul was. And we know Paul was a very early convert, so um, Andronicus and Junia, they must have been, you know, uh, among some of the, uh, the first converts, essentially. And what's even more interesting is the point about them being prominent among the apostles. So it seems from a combination of Paul saying, well, they were in Christ before I was, and they're also prominent among the apostles, that these two were apostles themselves. And by extension, that would mean that we have a, an example here of a woman apostle. Now, why is that important? Well, one, all the other examples, explicit examples of apostles are, are men that we see in the New Testament. Two, uh, it um, has caused some sore point uh, throughout the history of scholarship because there are some manuscripts which read in basically an alternate form of the, the name Junia. Uh, and this is usually Junius, which would be more of a, of a male name rather than a female name. Uh, and so some people have pointed to that to say, well, no, this is not, there was no woman apostle, you know, nothing to see here. This is, you know, this was not, not a woman. This is not a husband and wife pair, et cetera, et cetera. But it's been pretty conclusively proven, at least in my opinion, that those were later distortions and that the original text uh, read uh, Andronicus and Junia and Paul is, in fact, talking about a woman here. Now, why this would have uh, the greatest implication out of anything that we've examined so far is the fact that we, if, if this is the case, if Junia is a woman, if they are considered to be apostles, both of which, in my opinion, seem pretty probable, then we have, a, again, a clear example of a woman being an apostle. And in early Christianity, you didn't get, unless you were Jesus, you know, under Jesus, the next important people are the apostles. So when we say apostles, we're talking about Peter. We're talking about, obviously, the other uh, part, parts of the 12. We have James, brother of Jesus. We have Paul. We have all of those uh, very prominent figures because being an apostle was, was not something that, that everybody was. It was a very select group, uh, a group of some of the earliest converts who also basically fulfilled various criteria, one of which is being actually... Um, either knowing Jesus uh, during his ministry or experiencing him resurrected. There's some controversy around that, too. Um, but nonetheless, if we consider Paul an apostle, because Paul, again, did not know Jesus during his earthly life, his, his experience of Jesus and his quote-unquote conversion came after Jesus appeared to him uh, after being resurrected, um, if we accept Paul as an apostle, and basically all Christians do, then we don't have to get into this de debate about Andronicus and Junia in terms of like trying to pinpoint exactly when they were apostles or did they know Jesus? Because if they're considered apostles, uh, it could very well be that um, they they experienced the resurrected Jesus in a similar manner to to how Paul did. But um, why this has 
the most implications for the modern day is that some um, Christian sects who either don't ordain women or they don't allow women to ascend to um, top positions um, within a given hierarchy is that all of the original apostles and prominent apostles were men, in addition to pointing to other things like First Timothy uh, and, and other lines within Paul's letters and, and the other letters that talk about um, women not having authority over men, not being allowed to speak in church, having restrictions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They'll point to that and say, well, you know, because we follow the Bible, um, this, this is why we have this policy. But uh, there's obviously a lot of problems with that. But without Junia as an example of an apostle, the, the argument is, is um, more, more clear-cut in the sense that somebody could just point to the lines in First Timothy and, and those other troubling lines and say, well, you know, Paul and, and Peter and the other authors of the New Testament, they very clearly say these things and we follow the Bible. And so that's how... Uh, that's what we base our policy off of here. And that's why we don't, for example, ordain women. Now you can come back and say, well, you know, look at somebody like Phoebe, who Paul calls a deacon and um, very highly praises her. And it seems like she held a prominent place and um, point to some other uh, women within Paul's letters, as well as um, women during the ministry of Jesus and say, well, look, uh, women were playing prominent roles here. You know, how do you explain that? Uh, now, I think that's a really good counterpoint, but um, I could see how maybe somebody could explain that away and say, well, you know, that that may be true. But then we have Paul, for example, in First Timothy saying very clearly that, you know, women are not um, not sanctioned to have authority over a man and to, to hold these these positions. And that's very clear cut. Uh, and so we don't argue with the Bible. We take it literally, you know, however you want to phrase it. And that's why we have our policy, regardless of that there might be some other examples here that you might point to of, of women holding some positions of power. But if we have a woman apostle, that definitely makes the argument stronger. Because you can't then say that all of the original apostles and early apostles were men. You can't then say that we don't have any uh, un we don't have any clear-cut examples of women having ultimate positions of authority in the church. Uh, and so this example of Junia is extremely important for that. Now, that hasn't exactly changed some people's minds. Uh, and some have pointed to this this whole debate around Junia versus Junius, the, the male version of the name, and saying, well, you know, we don't believe that Junia is the, the actual name of the person. We think it's Junius, so we don't accept that it's a woman. But regardless, you know, I, I think that this is not an example that a lot of us hear about, you know, whether we grew up in the church or, or whether we just you know, go and read our Bibles and are generally interested in, uh, in Christianity and in women in Christianity. We don't usually hear these, these people mentioned, but they're extremely important, even though we may only have one line about them in the entire Bible. Um, they're, they're still really important witnesses to not only differing views of women within early Christianity, 
you know, you could have in the same New Testament examples of women apostles and the stuff that you find in in First Timothy, you know, sitting not side by side, but, you know, for all intents and purposes, basically side by side uh, in, in having that tension. But also, you know, trying to counter some of these arguments from certain groups who want to uh, exclude women from all of these positions on um, what would seem to be uh, some faulty logic, or at least picking and choosing of the, the, the evidence here. Now, I don't want to go down that whole rabbit hole. I just think that it's important to uh, bring to light all of the evidence that we have say what we can know for sure, what we're reasonably sure of, what seems probable, what doesn't seem likely, and what is, um, you know, highly doubtful. And just laying it all on the table and letting people make decisions for themselves. Uh, and so um, when it comes to women in the New Testament, you know, this is something, this is an issue that has continued up to the present day. And always when I hear it discussed, I I don't really hear a lot of these points being brought up. Um, a lot of it is, you know, talking about the history of women in the church and um, how they've been silenced and such, all of which is is true and absolutely should be should be discussed and kept in mind. But if we ultimately want to counter um, some uh, supposedly biblical views of these things. We have to go back to the biblical text itself, explore what it offers us, and supplement that with historical knowledge and other secular ways of looking at the text and situating it historically to try to, uh, to understand it in its own context in a way that makes sense. If we combine all those those tools at our disposal, I think that that ultimately will, even if it doesn't change anybody's mind, it will at least make for a more robust and, and thorough and ultimately accurate discussion of these really important topics, regardless of if you're approaching it from just a purely intellectual uh, curiosity or you are uh, you are a believing Christian and this is really important to you regardless of what side you stand on or it's just you know something that you're interested in learning more about regardless of you know where, where you're you're coming from with this um, bringing all of these forces and tools together I think um, will will help if not move the conversation forward at least expand the conversation make it more comprehensive, make it a more, you know, diverse discussion that takes into account some of these lesser known pieces of evidence. And then ultimately, as I said, laying it on the table and letting people um, make up their, their own minds and, and decide what's credible and, and what they think is the, um, the, the, the stance that they want to take, given their experience and the, the evidence that, that they have. So ultimately, that's that's one of the guiding principles of this podcast, and so that's why I was looking forward to making this episode. Is that I think it, uh, you know, is a perfect subject for um, understanding the link between history and current events, and and how to bridge those two gaps without necessarily having an agenda towards changing somebody's mind. Um, how that could still be useful to these discussions and help us better understand both uh, our past world, but also how we got here today and why things are the way they are.
So I hope uh, you you learned something or, or got something out of uh, this this episode. And um, thanks as always for listening. And I will catch you in the next one.